If you try to hoard money, you will have to take it by force. If you want to be resplendent in the dignities of high office, you will have to grovel before the man who bestows it. In your desire to outdo others in high honor, you will have to cheapen and humiliate yourself by begging. If you want power, you will have to expose yourself to the plots of your subjects and run dangerous risks. If fame is what you seek, you will find yourself on a hard road, drawn this way and that until you are worn with care. Decide to lead a life of pleasure, and there will be no one who will not reject you with scorn as the slave of that most worthless and brutal master, the human body. Hope is not placed in God in vain, and prayers are not made in vain. For if they are the right kind, they cannot but be efficacious. Avoid vice, therefore, and cultivate virtue. Lift up your mind to the right kind of hope, and put forth humble prayers on high. A great necessity is laid upon you, if you will be honest with yourself. A great necessity to be good, since you live in the sight of a judge who sees all things. What you just heard was from Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, the book that I'll be considering uh, today. Welcome to Handmade Humanity, a podcast that helps you develop the judgment, dexterity, and care necessary for classical education. I'm Austin Hoffman. Classical education is a vast cathedral, and it can be difficult to know where to begin. Well, whichever door you've entered by, however long you've stayed, I hope that you'll find something here in the tradition to enrich your life and awaken you to wonder at the beauty of the world. I mentioned last week that Max and I would continue our discussion of education in the classroom and applying the liberal arts in a practical manner. But he, he was traveling to see his family this weekend, so we weren't able to record together. So in lieu of that episode, which is still coming, uh, please enjoy this one on the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. Now, Boethius is perhaps a figure that is not very well known in our day, although for thousands of years, uh, from the time he, he first lived and wrote until all the way through the Reformation, perhaps, he was at various times the second or third most popular author. During the Middle Ages, after the Bible and the Aeneid, uh, he would have been third. He has been translated by various rulers such as Alfred the Great or Elizabeth I, as well as people like Geoffrey Chaucer or Thomas More. There is hardly a single book uh, that was written during the Middle Ages that didn't in some way reference Boethius, yet in our age he's, he's largely forgotten. And I think that's a travesty, and, and hopefully this, this episode will help to correct that. Um, if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, you actually encounter Boethius even there. Uh, that in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, while Eustace has been dragoned and is, is lying on the shore, uh, bemoaning his fate, uh, Reepicheep comes up and essentially says, I could tell you of scores of knights and lords and ladies and people who had high fortune, had experienced a sudden drop and fall, but then uh, fortune's wheel turned again, and they experienced a revival of their fortune. So cheer up, Eustace. Fortune's wheel will turn again. Uh, Boethius was such a large influence on, on C.S. Lewis uh, that in nearly all of his works you can encounter that sort of, of reference. Uh, my Many of my students have been memorizing different quotations from various sources, and a number of them have chosen quotes from C.S. Lewis, and I always have to smile when I hear some of them and say, yep, I know where that he got that from. Uh, he is just borrowing from Boethius, and his influence uh, continues to live on. Anicius Manlius Severinus Boethius lived through the transition of the Roman Empire to the Germanic tribes. So if you remember this period of time after Rome's empire had been 
crumbling. The Germanic tribes have been sweeping in from the north and from the east. They effectively take over the capital of of Rome, yet preserve some of the Roman systems. Uh, Boethius is living through this time. Uh, He was was born about 480 AD, uh, so just before um, one of the traditional dates given for the final end of the Roman Empire. Uh, and he he lives through this this occupation of the Germanic tribes, um, and does quite well despite this. He's right on this hinge point of history between uh, the Roman Empire and then the medieval age. And so some authors have called him the last of the Romans and the first of the Scholastics, or the first of the medievals. Although he wasn't a monarch, he wasn't a king. Uh, in many ways, Boethius represents Plato's ideal philosopher king. He's well-gifted and trained in philosophy, he possesses a perfect moderation of virtue, and he was blessed with good fortune. He was perhaps the most brilliant man in Rome during his time. He was an orator, he was a philosopher, he was a musician, he was a theologian, he was a scholar, he was a ruler. Uh, He wrote many works, he wrote uh, works on music, he wrote works on, on the Trinity, and the one that we are considering today is the Consolation of Philosophy. So Boethius was born around 480 AD to patrician parents. These are, this is the nobility of, of Rome. Yet his parents died while he was very young. So he was raised by Quintus Aurelius Mem- Memmius Symmachus, who was a former consul of Rome, and later became uh, Symmachus' son-in-law after marrying uh, Rusticiana. Boethius possessed a great love of letters and was trained in the liberal arts and philosophy by Symmachus, and, and he, he references him quite favorably in his, his writings. Boethius spoke Latin and Greek, and he translated Aristotle's works on logic into Latin, as well as some of Plato's dialogues. In, in many ways, Boethius is the person to thank for generating the Latin philosophical vocabulary because he was translating these works and commentaries, and he passes them on to the coming Middle Ages. He obtained many public honors throughout his life. After Theodoric, the king of the Ostrogoths, came in, deposed, and then executed Odoacer, the the king of Rome or the emperor of Rome, uh, Boethius became a senator in Rome at the age of 25. So this is about year 505 AD. Five years later, he became consul, 510. And then his climb keeps on going as he is nominated by Theodoric, this, this now emperor of Rome, uh, as the Magister Officiorum, or the head officer in the Roman state. But Boethius says that his greatest pride, his greatest honor, was the day that his two sons, Symmachus and Boethius, became joint consuls in the year 522. However, for Boethius, this good fortune did not last. For the following year, Boethius was thrown in prison at Pavia on charge of conspiracy against Theodoric. Uh, Theodoric grew very paranoid, and uh, a number of his Uh, senators accused Boethius of conspiring against Theodoric, and so as a result, Theodoric throws him in prison, and Boethius would be executed the next year. Uh, The historical record shows that his cord was tied around his head until his eyes popped from their sockets, and then he was bludgeoned with a club. So Boethius did not experience a very happy ending. While he is in prison awaiting this this death uh, at the hands of Theodoric, he composes perhaps his greatest work, or at least his most famous, which is the Consolation of Philosophy. Essentially, he turns to uh, this philosophical system to provide comfort in his hour of death. And this immediately raises a, a big question that's often been debated about the Consolation of Philosophy. For Boethius is a Christian. So why, in his greatest hour of need, 
when he is in prison, awaiting death at the hands of Theodoric, why does he not turn to the consolations of Christ? Why does he turn to his Platonism uh, when he, he needs comfort most? Is he rejecting Christianity? Uh, and, and throughout the ages, many uh, people and atheists such as Bertrand Russell or Edward Gibbon uh, have highly praised this work. And is this why? Do they, they think that he's uh, betraying his Christianity and this is his last uh, year of his life? I, I don't think that's a, a fair assessment at all of, of Boethius's work. Uh, so Lewis says that Boethius gives the answer as to why he turns to philosophy rather than Christianity right in the title of his book. Uh, he, he almost, he puts in uh, Boethius's mouth uh, these words, right? I wrote a philosophy, not Christianity. You might co as well complain that uh, the consolations of geometry doesn't have enough arithmetic in it. I told you what I was writing about. But this kind of response only pushes the question back somewhat. For why did Boethius choose to write about the consolations of philosophy rather than the consolations of Christianity? It, it just sort of bumps it back a step. I believe that Boethius is writing in this way uh, because we might call him a Christian Platonist. He's obviously not a full-bore Platonist. He believes in, in things like the Trinity and writes a, a wonderful book on that. He believes in the Incarnation. But he does believe that this philosophical system uh, communicates truth that there's no final contradiction between philosophy and revelation or scripture. So when he turns to philosophy for his consolation, uh, modified and, and grounded in scripture, he's, he's not just talking uh, with one hand tied behind his back, but he is expressing Christianity, although through another means. I, I think it's completely unfair to Boethius to say that he, he is failed by Christianity and so he turns to philosophy in his greatest need. But what he sees... Uh, his project as is merely defending and, and speaking of Christianity through philosophy because there's no contradiction between them. He is not so much uh, despairing over his death as he is mourning or questioning his sudden loss of status and position in the Roman Empire. Further, despite relying on pagan authors, he, he quotes Aristotle and Plato and uh, Plotinus and, and Pythagoras and numerous other uh, classical writers throughout his work, despite this, his writing is also saturated in a Christian worldview. For example, that quotation that I read at the beginning where he speaks of, of praying to God directly, well, that's a personal God in contrast to the impersonal good of Platonism. Uh, he believes that God will judge the world in righteousness, that God can be known by man. Uh, there is one section in which Lady Philosophy quotes from the Book of Wisdom uh, back to him, a, a, a book considered uh, apocryphal by Protestants or, or but part of the canon of Scripture by uh, Roman Christians. And he, Boethius responds, oh, you know Scripture too, uh, as a rough, rough paraphrase. So although the proofs he draws upon in this work are primarily from the philosophers or from the poets, throughout his framework is explicitly Christian. And I don't think we should uh, assume that Boethius is abandoning Christianity merely because he chooses to focus on, on philosophy. Instead, he is showing us how they integrate together, how there is no contradiction, and he is supporting the entire classical project, that we may learn truth wherever it is found, and that there is no final uh, disjunction or break between reason and faith. The Consolation of Philosophy is a very short work. 
I, I have an edition on Audible, and it's maybe five and a half hours uh, read at normal speed. And that also includes a, a short introduction by, by the, the translator. So uh, there was one period where I was gearing up to teach the book in the, in the fall, and I listened to this audiobook over and over and over and over again throughout the summer. Uh, and it's so short that you can almost hold the entire structure in your mind. Um, and it's a wonderful work packed with, with wisdom on nearly every page. As I've mentioned, the, the medievals uh, drew on Boethius everywhere. You can't swing a cat in the Middle Ages without running into Boethius. His book is structured in five books rather than chapters. And each of these chapters have an alternating pattern between poetry and philosophy. So typically there's a, a poetic uh, section and then followed by a prose section. And this pattern repeats uh, all the way with one exception. For the book begins with poetry, and then we quickly start alternating to where the book can end in prose uh, um, without a, a poem at the end. He, he makes a slight change. So he, he begins it in poetry, but ends in philosophy. Uh, and part of the reason is, is Lady Philosophy shows up and begins to criticize him for turning to the poets instead of set of reason. Uh, this is how the, the book opens. In book one, uh, Boethius complains about his sudden change in fortune. He was once at the height of power. Now he's languishing in prison on false charges in spite of his righteous living. Uh, I don't deserve this. Suddenly, Lady Philosophy appears and rebukes him for his melancholy. She banishes these muses of poetry who are, are standing around Boethius in his jail cell, and she begins to cure Boethius of his amnesia. She says at, at the outset that he has forgotten his true nature, he has forgotten the end and purpose of the world, and he has forgotten the means by which God governs. And so she begins to teach Boethius again the true character of fortune and her gifts. Book two of the philosophy is perhaps the most uh, memorable or quotable section uh, of the entire work. For in book two, Lady Philosophy presents this image of fortune's wheel. So fortune is this blind uh, mistress spinning this wheel. When you're at the top, you enjoy honor, you enjoy prestige, you enjoy wealth, but the wheel continues to spin. Uh, what follows prosperity is a fall. Uh, but yet while you're at the bottom of the wheel, in suffering, in poor health, in weakness, in, uh, in, in disrespect, you can expect this wheel to continue to turn and a rise to follow. Although Boethius is drawing this from Cicero, uh, this image of fortune and her wheel dominates the Middle Ages. In fact, it even continues to dominate our current culture. Uh, whenever we talk about somebody you know, waiting your turn or give somebody else a turn, we're talking about a turn of fortune's wheel that you've had good things, now it's time for that wheel to spin and for those good things to be enjoyed by others. So Lady Philosophy presents this image and begins to remind Boethius that fortune's always been in constant. Uh, he, she says that this is fortune's only constancy. She is constant in her inconstancy. Uh, her gifts are her own and she distributes to them to whom she will. So if Boethius did not deserve to receive the good things in life that he, he got from fortune's hand, you can't possibly complain when they are removed. Philosophy argues that wealth and fame and honor, nobility, power, office, pleasure, they're not loved for their own sake, so they can't actually provide happiness. So fortune just goes on her way, merrily spinning her wheel, distributing these things as she will, but then removing them. And 
Lady Philosophy ultimately concludes, much to the consternation of Boethius and uh, many of us, that bad fortune is actually better than good because bad fortune enlightens us. It reveals the truth. It sobers us, and it makes us wise. Here's Lady Philosophy in Book 2, Section 8. What I want to say is a paradox, and so I am hardly able to put it into words. For bad fortune, I think, is more use to a man than good fortune. Good fortune always seems to bring happiness, but deceives you with her smiles, whereas bad fortune is always truthful, because by changing, she shows her true fickleness. Good fortune deceives, but bad fortune enlightens. With her display of specious riches, good fortune enslaves the minds of those who enjoy her, while bad fortune gives men release through the recognition of how fragile a thing happiness is. And so you can see fortune in one way, capricious, wayward, and ever inconstant, and in another way, sober, prepared, and made wise by the experience of her own adversity. And lastly, by her flattery, good fortune lures men away from the path of the true good, but adverse fortune frequently draws men back to their true good like a shepherdess with her crook. So philosophy essentially argues that bad fortune is actually better for a man because it reveals the truth about nature, that these gifts cannot be counted on, that wealth, nobility, honor, fame, power, and office, they can't be expected to last. They pass and they fade they can be stolen, they can be robbed, and so they cannot be the true nature of happiness. This is the topic that Lady Philosophy turns to in Book 3, the nature of happiness. She quickly describes to Boethius a divided view of happiness, where happiness is this fragmented thing where you might find some bits in, in wealth or in fame or in honor or in nobility or in power and office, all these same things that we saw in, in Book 2, and that all men, in seeking these things individually, are seeking happiness, but they do so in a, a divided or fragmented way. In contrast, she teaches Boethius that happiness is actually a whole. It's, it's unified. True happiness is what is self-sufficient, what is powerful, what is glorious, what is revered, what is happy, what is unified, what is good and divine. And that all these different terms only differ in name while they're actually the same substance. And so you can see where this argument is, is leading to, that philosophy is essentially describing the nature of God as the only true object of happiness. That men, in their fallen nature, pursue these divided things or gifts of God, uh, think they are the true source of happiness, think they will lead them to true happiness, but they're actually merely the, the rivers or streams of light that were meant to lead them to what happiness always consisted of, namely God. And in a crucial point in this, this book, uh, philosophy calls upon God for light before identifying him as the happiness for which all men desire. There's, there's an explicit prayer given here to God uh, to give, give Boethius light to be able to see this and understand this. And this marks a, a turn in the book. After this, this prayer, uh, the arguments become explicitly more religious. Uh, they become more open about speaking of God and providence and his governance of the world. They almost move from the earthly sphere of fortune and chance and change to uh, the higher vision or closer to the center of the universe. Yet Boethius still isn't satisfied. In, in book four, he begins to complain about the wicked's prosperity. Uh, and philosophy argues with him that the wicked, although they might enjoy good benefits, are actually powerless and unhappy while the good are powerful and happy. She further argues that sin never goes unpunished or, or virtue unrewarded, 
And finally, that what happens to the bad is always misfortune, while the good only experience positive fortune. So that even though it seems like the wicked escape without penalty or receive greater rewards than the good, the wicked are the least happy because they have the desire, power, and achievement of evil, all of which makes them more wicked and thus unhappy. So philosophy says in, in book four, section three, therefore, just as goodness is its own reward, so the punishment of the wicked is their very wickedness. And further in the, the next section, section four of book four, that the wicked are happier if they suffer punishment than if they are unrestrained by any just retribution. So philosophy is, is uh, essentially turning back to Plato and his Republic, where the, if you remember the, the great discussion of the Republic is, is justice truly more profitable than injustice? For one of the characters in the Republic argues that, look, if you're unjust, but yet people think that you're just, you can get away with anything. They will give you honors because they think you are a just man. And at the same time, they think you are honorable. You can rob them blind. So injustice is much more profitable than justice. Um, people don't want to actually be just. They just want to be thought to be just. And philosophy is essentially giving her own take on this argument. Uh, Boethius, through the mouth of philosophy, is giving his take on this argument where he's saying that, no, 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 no. Uh, we do not want to be good merely for the rewards that being thought to be good gets you. But goodness is a gift in itself. That wickedness is its own punishment. That the ability to do evil is itself an, an evil and is a, is a poor fortune. It's, it's suffering to be locked into vice and ha lack the ability to do any good. And so that actually the, the good are more powerful even if they suffer for it than the wicked who might receive material benefits yet are unrestrained in their wickedness. And thus he can say that being punished for wickedness is actually better for you than if you are unrestrained, if you can continue on in wickedness. And then finally, book five, uh, Boethius begins to pose his final questions about the existence of chance and the relation of God's foreknowledge to man's free will. Almost every discussion about free will and God's providence uh, after this is essentially reworking Boethius's arguments. Lady philosophy starts to demonstrate that foreknowledge and free will do not provoke necessity in the other because knowledge does not depend on the object known, but on the knower. And I'm giving a short summary of, of the arguments here, but essentially God's vision or foreknowledge is perfect, it's simultaneous, and it's complete. God does not so much foresee things, see things about to happen, as he simply sees them. He, he sees them all simultaneously in perfect vision uh, at the same time, if we can use that word of God. Further, his foreknowledge embraces all secondary causes, like man's choices. Thus, God remains sovereign, and then man remains free. In an ironic section, after defending man's freedom from necessity, man is free, he is not bound by God's foreknowledge, philosophy then goes on to say that it is actually necessary for man to live justly and place one's hope in the God who sees all things. Not because of external constraint, not because of God's foreknowledge, but because of what a truly good life looks like. So that's a short summary of the structure of Boethius's work. It's five short books uh, contained where he deals with these different discrete topics. It's a main ideas or principle to, to go back around, uh, to draw out of Boethius would be uh, fortune, his teaching on fortune, 
his teaching on happiness, and then his arguments concerning predestination and free will. Boethius was the most influential author in the Middle Ages, after Augustine and Aristotle. So Boethius is, is credited with being the popularizer of Fortune's Wheel. So she is this uh, dame who whimsically spins her wheel, lifting the low up high and casting down the prosperous. You can't expect anything from Fortune except this continual revolution that she plays as a game. So as with day and night, the changing of the seasons, the temperamental seas, we do wrong to expect only good times in our lives. As the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us, there's a time for everything under the sun. So we must be thankful for the good, but also prepare for the bad, because this is the nature of the world. We can't expect fortune to stop spinning her wheel. We can't expect circumstances to change. When philosophy teaches Boethius that bad fortune is actually better than good fortune, because bad fortune reveals uh, what fortune is actually like, uh, she uses this to turn man uh, from the fleeting nature of life and turn his eyes to the things above instead of the things on the earth. So good fortune is deceptive because it will inevitably leave and then man will be unprepared for it. And so this is a, a fun discussion to, to have because often in our modern mindsets, we believe that success, good fortune, is the only good. That someone who experiences bad fortune must be doing something wrong. Uh, they must be under the judgment of God, perhaps, or they must not be acting in a, a righteous way. This, I mean, this is essentially the argument of, of Job's friends. Well, bad things are happening to you. You must be doing something wrong. But yet, we might try and test this claim by thinking of different scenarios. So we might ask uh, students, right? Is it better to try your hardest and succeed or to try your hardest and, and fail? Is it better to do your best and experience only good fortune? Or is it better to do your best and experience only bad fortune? Right? Lady philosophy is clearly on the side that bad fortune is better than good fortune. It is better to know the nature of fortune uh, and experience bad than to only experience good. So maybe we imagine two college students uh, one of them receives only A's, no matter what he does, no matter how he studies, he, he always ex uh, succeeds in his work. The other college student, no matter what he does, no matter how he studies, how hard he tries, uh, how diligently he works, he receives only F's. He fails everything, every single assignment that he does, every single quiz, every single test. And so we might ask, which of the two students is better off? And on the surface, it seems that, well, the student that experiences good fortune is far better uh, off than the student who experiences only Fs. He's going to be far more happy. You might say that, oh, the student that only gets Fs, no matter what he does, will just give up on the system. He'll just quit. He won't continue on. But yet, if we start digging a little bit deeper, our answer might start to change. For what happens when other things start to go wrong in these respective students' lives? Uh, the, the student that has experienced only success, how is he going to respond to adversity? Perhaps his car breaks down. Uh, how is, is, are these two students going to respond differently to other ups and downs in life? Which of these two students would be more grateful for an unexpected gift, you know, perhaps a financial donation or, or perhaps some other kind of celebration or honor? Which will be more ready to receive that, that gift in gratitude and thanksgiving? Who's going to be more prepared to weather the ups and downs of a storm-filled life? As, as, as we all know, uh, life is anything but stable. Who would be more likely to receive the gospel and the promise of forgiveness in Christ? The one who has experienced nothing but success and good things or the one who has experienced nothing but failure? I mean, perhaps Jesus is, is alluding to this same concept when he says those that are well don't need a physician. 
uh, only those that are sick. When we change the lens with which we observe these two figures, they start to appear in a slightly different light because fortune never lasts. Uh, fortune continues to spin her wheel. She is a, a merry mistress uh, who you cannot rely on, who endlessly plays her game, and if we experience uh, turns for the better, we can experience turns for the worst. We cannot count on good blessings all the time. And it's only by experiencing adversity are we trained in gratitude and thankfulness. The constant smile of fortune actually undermines virtue. So, I mean, this is something that I experience in, in debating whether or not to start this podcast or not. I didn't want to do it at first because what if it fails? What if it doesn't work? It would only be worth it if it ended up being a success. And yet Boethius' teaching here applies directly to that because he would essentially say, who cares if it's a failure? Uh, you might actually learn more from it being a failure than if it was a, a smashing success. Bad fortune is a better teacher than good. For in bad fortune, we are better able to perceive what is actually good. Another topic that Boethius turns to uh, is the nature of happiness uh, in, in book three. And this is perhaps the, the longest argument because after all, he's in prison. He has lost his honors. He is awaiting his death. Uh, it seems that he has no chance for happiness. He has no chance for good things. It is in the nature of man to desire happiness as their greatest good. This is something that stretches back uh, to Aristotle, who essentially says the end of everyone is to seek happiness, or Blaise Pascal, who says all men desire happiness, even those that hang themselves. Uh, this is a, a fundamental desire of humanity, and if we get to the bottom of all of our other secondary desires, we typically find that happiness is what we're all striving to achieve. The, this claim that happiness is the goal of man's life is nearly universal among philosophers as well as theologians, uh, the Westminster Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we see this idea of happiness also included there. So when Boethius discusses happiness, he, he does contend that true happiness is only found in God, who is the highest good. And he likens all these lesser goods that we might enjoy as rays from the sun that radiate out from their source. They are only good insofar as they participate in the highest good. This is a very platonic way of looking at the world. But if we look at these rays instead of the sun from which they come, we get distracted. But if we look along this beam, we can be led to that blinding glory of the sun and find true happiness. Uh, this, this is illustrated by C.S. Lewis. when he, It's an essay, Meditations from a Tool Shed, I believe it's called, where he talks about walking into this old uh, rickety tool shed with a number of holes in the roof, and it's dark in there, yet you can see these rays of light piercing through those holes into the shed, and you can see, right, the dust mites swirling in it. And if you look at the beams of light, you can clearly see them contrasted to the background. You see there's light there. But if you were to look along those beams... Right? turn your face to look along the beam through the hole out to the sun, you would see something far more glorious, uh, namely the, the sun. And so Boethius' teaching on happiness has two dimensions to it. So on the one hand, uh, there's a vertical dimension. Man's nature is to direct his soul towards the highest good, God. He's supposed to look along the beams. When he looks at the lower things, he exalts earthly goods. He becomes less human and more like a beast. So this is another um, wonderful section of the Consolation of Philosophy where he talks about uh, man becoming more bestial if he puts these lower goods higher. So here's Boethius talking about how pursuing these things uh, apart from the, the true good turns men into beasts and animals. 
The result is that you cannot think of anyone as human whom you see transformed by wickedness. You could say that someone who robs with violence and burns with greed is like a wolf. A wild and restless man who is forever exercising his tongue in lawsuits could be compared to a dog yapping. A man whose habit is to lie hidden in an ambush and steal by trapping people would be likened to a fox. A man of quick temper has only to roar to gain the reputation of a lion heart. The timid coward who is terrified when there is nothing to fear is thought to be like the hind. The man who is lazy, dull, and stupid lives an ass's life. A man of whimsy and fickleness who is forever changing his interests is just like a bird. And a man wallowing in foul and impure lusts is occupied by the filthy pleasures of a sow. So what happens is that when a man abandons goodness and ceases to be human, being unable to rise to a divine condition, he seeks to the level of being an animal. When a man turns away from true goodness and happiness, he becomes bestial. He, he becomes something less than human because he has abandoned reason. He, he sinks down. And philosophy in, in book three shows how all of these gifts pursued individually ultimately cannot grant the good that they promise. Boethius shows how happiness, uh, when pursued falsely, can be divided into all of these different uh, objects. There can be uh, honors, there can be fame, there can be power, there can be wealth, yet none of these pursued individually can grant the thing that they promise. For even fame, if you're famous in one place, that doesn't mean you're famous in another. And further, you're always dependent on the reputations of men to grant you that fame or that honor. If you receive the power of kingship, at every moment, you must be afraid that someone will take it from you. So what sort of power is it, then, that strikes fear into those who possess it, confers no safety on you if you want it, and which cannot be avoided when you want to renounce it? So even power cannot grant uh, safety or security. Wealth cannot make a man free of want and self-sufficient, though this was the very promise we saw it offering. And philosophy goes through all of these different items and shows how they cannot actually grant the things that they promise. If a man wishes to be happy, he must seek what is sufficient, what is powerful, what is glorious, what is revered. Um, and he shows that all of these, these names that we give are actually the same thing. The mistake of false happiness is to try and seek uh, these, uh, these uh, individual things to the exclusion of the others. And so we end up with the myriad of possibilities of vice. The, the opening line of Anna Karenina. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Because there is one path of happiness. There is one path of virtue, but yet there is a numerous, myriad uh, number of paths for vice. Sin, just like rabbits, ends up breeding more sin. Once goodness is fragmented, it becomes like a diluted wine, which is tasteless and unsatisfying. A final topic that, that Boethius turns to that is often of, of great um, potency in, in discussion is the, the problem of the relationship between foreknowledge and free will. So if man is free, if he makes choices, how can his, his choices then be foreknown? If God foreknows something, then it must necessarily happen. So if God foresees that I would marry my wife, then I have no choice but to marry her. Otherwise, God couldn't have foreseen it, or, or so the argument runs. So numerous pagans and, and Christians have wrestled with this problem and occasionally try to solve it by denying one of these, these two uh, um, poles. So they either deny that man has a real choice at all and turn to fatalism, or they deny that God knows all things, essentially leading to a form of open theism or uh, chance, um, that there is no future, there is no governance of the world, it's all just random. 
So, for example, Cicero, when he debates this question, uh, chooses man's free will. He denies God's foreknowledge, to which Augustine responds that wishing to make men free, he made them impious. So, essentially, there is no God governing the world. Just do whatever you want. But Boethius points out that part of the problem is our conception of foreknowledge and eternity. God's eternity possesses simultaneously the whole fullness of everlasting life, which lacks nothing of the future and has lost nothing of the past. God does not see before, but he simply sees. He has no future and no past, but all is eternally present to him. This is different from man's soul, which is everlasting in its existence, as a series of successive moments stretching infinitely into the future. Yet God's knowledge comprehends all moments, our past and our future, immediately and simultaneously. Right? We walk through life uh, moment by moment. We can think back on the past, we can think forward to the future, but we can only live in the present. Yet Boethius is arguing that God's knowledge, God's existence, is not like ours at all. Uh, God does not have a series of successive moments where he either uh, looks back or he looks forward to these different moments. He does not look at different points in history in successive sequence but he merely sees the entire thing at once as, as one complete whole. So in, in this sense, God doesn't foresee at all. He just sees. So while we're most anxious about our future, we're most ashamed of our past, we can only live in our successive series of presence, but yet God knows us absolutely and without illusion. God knows our past better than we do. God knows our future better than we do. And it is because that God sees all of our moments in his present that he's able to distribute his gifts and trials in order to work all things for our good and govern the world in righteousness. So we make our choices as we will, but God still beholds them all. So Boethius has, has moved uh, from the outer circle of, of fortune and sort of this, this random uh, change towards the center of the universe where God is actually governing and distributing these things. And so God's vision includes our choices. It includes our desires. It includes our actions. So our wills aren't bound by fate or providence or foreknowledge, but yet God can still see them and foreordain them and foreknow them. And so we are still responsible to live justly and to live holily before the judge who sees all things. So when we consider Boethius' consolation, uh, there are many consolations that you could have for life. Uh, if you don't accept Boethius's consolation, uh, you might console, uh, you might say at someone's funeral, right? They lived a good life. Their children loved them. They had many possessions. Uh, they did many good things. They were famous. They held high office. He enjoyed life to the fullest. But now he is dead. But yet, if we are trying to seek a true consolation of, of life, uh, Boethius would say that the, the most important consolation that we could hear at someone's funeral would be. He was a friend of God. And ultimately, that friendship only comes through Christ by grace through faith. And so if we are reading Boethius rightly, I would contend that Boethius is driving us to faith in the God who knows all things. I, I, again, I think it's, it's untenable that Boethius is ab abandoning his Christianity here, but he sees it all as one whole. And so the, the fitting conclusion of Boethius's work is that hope is not placed in God in vain. And prayers are not made in vain. For if they are the right kind, they cannot but be efficacious. Avoid vice, therefore, and cultivate virtue. Lift up your mind to the right kind of hope and put forth humble prayers on high. A great necessity is laid upon you, if you'll be honest with yourself. A great necessity to be good, 
since you live in the sight of a judge who sees all things. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Handmade Humanity. If you did, please share on social media and leave a five-star review on your favorite listening platform. I personally am not on any social media, and so I'll be relying on listeners to spread the word about this podcast so that more people can listen. So if you know someone that might like it, please let them know. Uh, if you are, if you would be so kind and willing to share the show on, on your social media accounts uh, to spread the word, that would help so much. So thank you for joining me, Austin Hoffman, for another episode of Handmade Humanity. Hope to be back next week with Max Pointner again to continue our discussion of the liberal arts in the classroom.